listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. Yeah, on the uh, on the road trip there, the wife kept screaming at me because every time your intro thing came on with that whatever shrieking noises, she'd say, "Turn it down! You're gonna freak out the dog every time." The the, the elk. Well, yeah, maybe that's what it was. So, you're gonna be hearing those pretty quick. Yeah, <laughs> so it was uh, it was funny because she gave me a hard time. Turn it down when you start that freaking podcast. It freaks out the dog every time you have that intro <laughs> <laughs> well that's funny that that was that was all by design good wake cool. people up that's what this is about so uh in my opinion this episode is one of the most critical and pivotal conversations with respect to wildlife management that could take place in british columbia right now so I'm going to do something a little different here than we normally do when we start the podcast, and I'm just going to launch us right into this conversation. So, hey, everybody, it's Mark Hall, your host. And Curtis Hall, co-host. And uh, we're joined today by um, Chad Day, president of the Taltan Central Government, and Jesse Zeman, director of Fish and Wildlife Restoration Program for the BC Wildlife Federation. Welcome, guys. Evening. Thanks for having me. It's pretty awesome. Um, you know, we've always wanted to, you know, do, f- uh, our podcast face to face with, you know, guests, uh, makes, makes for a good conversation when, when we're in the same room, but the reality is, um, things are a little different right now. So we're doing the zoom meeting, uh, Jesse, you've probably got about three or four on the go right now here on a couple of different podcasts and a meeting or something at, at the same time here. Yeah. Tonight, not so much, but today was zoom overload for sure. <laughs> Yeah, it's. Uh, I think everybody's everybody's that way. Um, you know, any kind of a, a gathering or meeting like this, it's customary to uh, acknowledge that the, the territory we're in. But you know, this is different situation. We're all in different places in British Columbia tonight. Jesse, you're over in the Okanagan, and Curtis and I are uh, in southeastern BC in the East Kootenays. Chad, you're in Smithers on your way home. Yeah, which suits in territory. So, you know, sort of, even though we're dispersed around the province, um, you know, in my mind, this discussion tonight is about Taltan territory. It's about Taltan governance. It's about the Taltan people. So, Chad, I just want to thank you for inviting us into the Taltan territory tonight. So, um, just to kind of set the stage here a little bit for our listeners, um, I just want to share a little bit of a story. It's kind of a a metaphor. Uh, it's got a bit of a moral to the story, um, just to get everybody in the right frame of mind here tonight. I think this is important. So in the mid-1980s, um, I lived and worked in Taltan Territory, I lived in Dees Lake, um, spent a bit of time um, stationed down in Telegraph Creek. And when you're driving the Cassiar Highway uh, on the way up to Dees Lake, just after you cross the Stikine River, um, on the big bridge just south of Dees Lake. Uh, there's a small sign on the side of the highway, and um, it says Arctic-Pacific Divide. And that's the place uh, in British Columbia on the North American continent where the water flows in two different directions. Everything south of that line is still flows to the Pacific, like the Stikine, and everything north is actually flowing to the Arctic. 
you know, and, and the time that I spent up there as I started exploring, you know, around the land, especially going out fly fishing on the rivers and streams, I, I struggled with something that I was seeing when I was out in a boat. I'm from southern British Columbia, and I'm used to rivers flowing a certain way. <laughs> um, because of where I grew up, the rivers, uh, you know, are headed to the Pacific. But when I was, you know, fishing up north, my brain had trouble with the fact that the rivers were flowing to the Arctic. And when I was out, I was expecting water to be float, fl- flowing a certain direction, and it wasn't. And my brain was telling me that, uh, you know, these rivers and streams were flowing quote-unquote the wrong way my brain was used to looking at the world a certain way so its immediate reaction was to think that something that I was not accustomed to was wrong well the rivers in northern British Columbia are not flowing the wrong way they're flowing the right way I just didn't grow up north of the Arctic Pacific Divide and it was my thinking that needed to be recalibrated not the rivers in the northern half of North American continent. So, you know, the more time I spent up there, uh, out on the land, meeting people, the more I understood the way things really work in northern British Columbia. You know, guys, the number one thing that our regular followers of the podcast tell us is that they listen to the podcast because they like to learn new things. They use it as a tool to educate themselves. And they often say... They listen to podcasts and their way of thinking gets challenged and they write us and they say that they like that. So feel free to challenge people's way of thinking tonight. I don't think, I don't think that's going to be uh, a problem. So, um, Chad, maybe just take a little bit of a uh, few moments here and just kind of paint the picture of Taltan territory for everybody. All right, I'll uh, do my best. So, Taltan Nation, Taltan Territory, uh, we're talking about Northwest British Columbia, little area called Bell 2. Our uh, southern, southern territory kind of starts right around there. And then you, uh, you know, continue up uh, Highway 37 there. And um, it goes right into to the southern Yukon. We're talking about over 97 thousand square kilometers uh the territory is 11 percent of british columbia and then a little bit of the yukon and you know you add those two pieces together and you're you're talking about a territory that's about the same size as portugal we've got three communities three taltan communities in the territory you have iskut you have deese lake you have telegraph creek uh, you have two bands that, uh, that are in Taltan territory. You have the Iskut Band. It's an Indian Act band there with the, its own chief and council. And then you have the Taltan Band in Telegraph Creek with its own chief and council. Uh, both bands are Taltan people. And then you have the Taltan Central Government, which is you know a very uh, unique governance system because back in the 70s, we had a man named George Asp. And George comes from the Azurza family. Um, he was one of the f- first First Nation lawyers in the country. I believe he was the third one, and definitely the first one from Taltan territory. 
And back in those days, you, you had a bunch of sexual discrimination in the Indian Act, uh, women that married non-Indigenous people would lose their, their distinct Indian status and the rights that, that went along with that. And BC Hydro wanted to dam the Stikine River for power. And the Stikine River is the, the Grand Canyon of Canada. Um, other than Mounted Zaidza, I'd say Mounted Zaidza and the Stikine River are you know, the two most sacred places to the Taltan people. Klapan is another sacred place, the sacred headwaters that a lot of people have, have spoken about in the recent past. And at that time, he basically came back and said, you know, this Indian Act system, it's not, it's not our form of governance. This was, this was pushed on to us by the federal government many years ago. We need to start creating our own territorial governance system that makes sure that none of our women None of our children, um, none of our people, no matter where they live or how much Taltan blood that they have, we can all participate in this government and we can, um, you know, come together and start pushing back on basically any issue that, that we wanted to, whether it was pushing back on the sexual discrimination at that time, that was in the Indian Act, or pushing back on industry wanting to dam the Stikine River. So... That's a, a very unique uh, governance system. I'm the elected president of what is now called the Taltan Central Government. Um, there's a president, a vice president, secretary treasurer that are voted in by all Taltan people at large. And then we have a board of directors of 10 family representatives that come from the 10 matriarchs that make up the Taltan nation. We have over 4,000 members and you know we come from a, a very special place not only in bc but in canada and the world because we have um you know some of the most iconic animals anywhere on the planet certainly in in canada i think we have just about everything that you could think of up there other than maybe uh maybe polar bears and the wild turkeys that i've heard you talk about on your your podcast <laughs> they'll, they'll be uh they'll be up there pretty quick <laughs> Bring them up. <laughs> um, how long have you been president now? I've been the president now. I was uh, reelected for the third time successfully uh, last summer. So I've been in this position now for six years. I was on the Taltan Band Council as a as a council member a couple years before that, and um, I'll be here for at least another two years as president. So it's uh, pretty incredible to, to be able to say that, you know, regardless of what happens two years from now, um, I would have, I would have put in 10 years of, of being an elected official at that time, just hammering away for my people. Wow. That's amazing. Um, Jesse, how long have you been with the BC Wildlife Federation? It's a good question. Uh, in this capacity, off and on for maybe five or six years, I would imagine. Been with the BCWF through the the local club, the Osceola Fishing Game Club. I got involved when I was a kid, probably five years old, four years old. Uh, part of a kokanee project, uh, catching kokanee and uh, stripping eggs and putting them into an incubator. I think that's the first memory I have, but the Osceola Club was a pretty 
active uh, club in the region and still is and doing a lot of stewardship and habitat work and fish work and so I guess it's been a long time but into the into this part of it into the fire and all the issues is uh, that's more recent that's maybe six years I would say okay wow yeah it, uh, time time goes by fast so um, Chad so Maybe just give us a little bit of what life is like being the president. I mean, we're we're going to be kind of talking, you know, about wildlife management in the land, but I mean, that's got to be just one, one small part of your sort of day to day work. What's it like? What's the responsibilities of someone in your position? Well, it's kind of funny when I was uh, my first council meeting when I came in. I would have been 24 years old. And my uncle was also on the council at that time. And he said to me, he said, well, are you ready nephew to take arrows in the back from our people and bullets in the front from everyone else out there? And uh, <laughs> I thought that was, uh, I thought that was pretty funny. And I thought, huh, I wonder what he's talking about. And uh, you know, politics is, um, Especially First Nation politics, it's uh, it's a uh, it's a whole other ball game because people don't just know a lot about you, but they know about every mistake your mom, your dad, your great grandfather made, and all your you know siblings. And um, we're one big family, and and you know Taltans are pretty um, pretty amazing people, and and I I love what I do, but it's uh, very demanding. Um, I'm the spokesman for the nation. So when there's nation issues like with wildlife or with fisheries or um, with a major industrial project, I'm responsible for the, um, for the negotiations. I'm responsible to, to speak for the people on those, those nation level issues. Um, given our isolated region, and as you'd spoken to earlier, you know, there's there's no substitute for for speaking face to face, for being face to face when you're uh, building relationships with people and, and in negotiations. So when I'm at my place in Telegraph Creek, I need to travel eight to ten hours, depending on the um, the weather conditions, and that's just to get to an airport in Whitehorse or Smithers or Terrace. And then sometimes we we work with you know the regional office or industry in in one of those locations, or sometimes they'll come up to us. But a huge portion of my job is is just being in, in negotiations with the province, with industry, other First Nations, other organizations, um, working with within our own communities with the local governments and and with local committees and stuff like that. So it's an enormous amount of travel and uh, yeah, just so, so diverse because um, we've got so many departments now. Uh, when I started six years ago, we had about uh, four employees and, and a lot of consultants and I didn't like that model. And, you know, six years later, we now have over 30 employees. We have several departments. Uh, we're growing uh, faster than ever, and I'm excited to tell you about some of the stuff that our, our wildlife department is doing. But um, 
yeah, man, just everything you could think of that a that a First Nation leader should be doing. I, I think I've been doing that other than some of the local initiatives, which, uh, you know, we have chief and councils back home to, to do that kind of work. Right, right. Well, probably lots of budget-related stuff. Do you get into that? Well, luckily, that's what the secretary-treasurer was uh, elected to do. <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm, I've certainly been a penny pincher my whole life and when you have four kids and you're paying your former spouse and you're trying to you know survive and everything else I mean I uh I'm always paying really close attention to to the to the finances and um you know I think we've done a really good job being being efficient and creatively um applying for a lot of other funding sources but also doing a lot with our with our Taltan Nation revenues that we get through um, through through industry in our territory. Yeah. Now, now, when we were talking before, when you were and, and just mentioned it here about like Taltan governance, um, and like it, it's it's different. It's a unique model. Maybe just kind of explain that a little bit more. Like, yeah. So I think is everybody so you- doing doing what Taltan are doing? If you ask the province that, I think they would tell you, unfortunately not. (laughs) (laughs) Because uh, what what makes our our model so unique is that we carved it out ourselves. A lot of other, you know, quote-unquote nations, and I don't say that disrespectfully, it's just that, you know, a nation is a is a group of people that share a common history, a common language, um, and you know, pre-contact, they were they were united and, and they were um, working together to protect their collective territory. And then what happened is, um, you know, the Indian Affairs came in and, and they started setting up Indian Act bands in different areas, sometimes with the same people but they were in a different area because, you know, they may have been a, a nomadic people and Taltan are a good example of that where, you know, we have two different bands, but it's the same people, a uh, place like Haida, Haida Gwai. It's obviously one nation. They're all Haida, but I believe they have two bands. I think a place like Chilcotin have four or five bands. Wet'suwet'en, my children are Taltan and Wet'suwet'en. I think the Wet'suwet'en have six bands, but, you the nations were fractured when the Indian Act came in and started setting up these bands and saying, hey, you belong to this chief and council over here on this reserve. You belong to this chief and council here on this reserve. So what Taltans have done is we've said, okay, we still have chief and councils and you know we will utilize those platforms as we can, but we're not going to allow a federally imposed governance system dictate how we make decisions as a collective. So we utilize the Society Act, the BC Society Act, as a as a vehicle. And I don't know if this is what the BCWF and a lot of organizations utilize the Society Act basically as a legal vehicle to create an organization with uh, all kinds of mandates. So we utilize that, that legal vehicle uh, to create our our territorial government and when we make decisions it's not a hereditary system 
It's not a system based on clans. It's a system that's based on family representatives being elected, leaders being elected. And a lot of our processes when we have an opportunity on a, a major industrial project and pieces like that, we actually have a process where we engage deeply with our citizens, with our Taotan people, um, using a plethora of, of platforms, and then it'll go to a ratification vote. So a lot of governance systems are, are a mess. I should have uh, clarified if I'm allowed to swear on this podcast or Absolutely. not. <laughs> but, uh, you know, to, to put it mildly, to, to quote my mother, this is her word, but it's a complete clusterfuck with a lot of nations. And again, I'm not going to name which ones. People know which ones they, they are because, um, you know, it's, it's created a, a lot of problems for the province. And I'm not blaming those nations, but um, it's taken a long time since the 70s for Taltans to get to where we are with our central government and with our processes to make sure that these are elected people that are implementing nation processes so that we as a collective nation are making these uh, decisions together. Yeah. Huh. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> now you talked about, you mentioned you have a wildlife department and how, how many, <clears throat> how many people are in the wildlife department? Maybe explain a little bit about what, what they do and their role and how they came about. Yeah, basically, before my time, there was never anybody that was um, employed at the Indian Act level with the ISCA band or the Taltan band or with the Taltan central government. There was there was no full-time position that just focused on wildlife. And as our revenues grew and as, um, you know, we got more organized as a, as a governance group, I just really pushed the board and said, you know, we got to go out on a limb and start spending some money to, to build our capacity. And I was confident that if we hired the right type of people that came in with the, with the big work ethic, that they would pay for their own positions. They would find other funds and um, you know, we would naturally grow over time. And sure enough, you know, we started a lands department, a wildlife department. And when we first started, we just had one director, but um, now we're at a place where we have a wildlife director, we have two uh, full-time lands guardians. We used to call them wildlife guardians, but their positions have, have quickly um, expanded. And we have seasonal wildlife guardians or lands guardians during the, um, during the hunting season. And you know, now we, we took on the fisheries department that used to be under the local government. So we expect to see a lot of collaboration there. And yeah, it's just, uh, it's been really great because when you're careful, you hire the right type of people, everybody's on the same page. Um, it's amazing how, how quickly you can grow and, and how much uh, good work you can get done. Yeah. And I mean, there's a lot going on in Taltan territory with mining, uh, especially in that part of the that that part of BC um a couple of big mines going in I think or you know one for sure I think there's more so that that must be a big part of lands and wildlife department is being involved in those those processes 
Yeah, we we have a um, a lands department, and that's um, you know separate separate staff, and they are uh, highly involved in all of our impact benefit agreements with um, with industry have you know committees and have a lot of places where our um, our central government staff and leadership are involved to to keep an eye on things. We actually have worked into all of those agreements that the majority of the environmental staff at the mine need to be Taltan. So that's um, that's pretty cool. You know, I have a couple cousins that are here and over at the other mine, there, there's other Taltans. And um, up at Red Chris Mine, we actually have over 30% Taltan employment. Um, then there's Pritium Mine that's, uh, that's to the south in Taltan slash Nishka territory. And then to the north, uh, it's just in care and maintenance right now, but uh, there's the Silvertip mine that's in Taltan slash uh, Casca territory. So I'm not totally up to date on the stats, but uh, when all three of those mines were, were up and running, we were three out of the 18 mines in BC. And most years, the majority of the mineral exploration expenditures, so this is mineral exploration companies going out, drilling, doing different kind of surveys to hopefully find a um, deposit for the next big mine. That's what, that's what their goal is. The majority of those expenditures from year to year are usually in, um, in Taltan territory because uh, the world has heard about the golden triangle. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty working with other first nations in our province, but um, you know, we have a reputation of, of being able to carefully manage the environment, as well as the relationships that we have with government and, and industry when opportunities arise and we're able to create a, a situation where, where we can all benefit and feel comfortable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <clears throat> now, I think people are probably used to hearing a lot in the news about Indigenous laws um, developing um, and enforcing your your own laws is that is that something tall ten do it's in development i think what's important for people to understand and i wrote a piece on social media that got picked up by the interior news here in smithers when this conflict was going on with uh with the witsuatin and i basically said to to the public that you know people got to remember that cultures and laws and society for all human beings was always evolving and changing. It's not, uh, it's not static. So even in the vocabulary, you know, we don't, we don't call our territory traditional Taltan territory. It's just Taltan territory. We don't call, traditional Taltan knowledge. We just call it Taltan knowledge because it's still alive and it's still changing and it's evolving. And um, I wouldn't call it traditional Taltan laws. I would say the Taltan law is the laws that we create today. So of course you go back into your, your history and you talk to your elders and you hopefully go through a, a thorough process of determining which, which laws and which policies really make sense in a in a modern day context and you try to um to honor your history but also honor your future because um we have a lot of 
children to look after. And we need to be proactive, uh, not reactive. And especially we as Indigenous people and Taotan people, we, uh, I think we have, our populations are growing three and a half to four and a, four and a half times faster than everybody else. And that's no judgment on our people because I, I have a lot of children and, you know, I'm sure I'll end up with a couple more. So we have a lot of people to take care of. <laughs> no, it's, um, yeah, I mean, that's interesting. Jesse, I mean, what's, what's your experiences or kind of thoughts on, you know, the future from, you know, the perspective of wildlife management of what it takes to kind of work with and integrate into, you know, like the tall town when they start developing or have laws you know, for wildlife management? Yeah, yeah. I think provincially where we're at right now in terms of wildlife is that we've got a pie that's getting smaller and everyone wants a piece of that pie. And so it's really convenient for the province to say, sure, let's talk about treaty and let's give you a bigger piece of a shrinking pie. And I think those outcomes are politically convenient, um, but socially and over the long term, I don't think that those things play out well. So I think, you know, in terms of talking about relationships with First Nations, um, the thing is, you have to think about this resource like everybody can see themselves in it, and you have to look at it like you want it to be recovered or restored or abundant or whatever word you want to use. Um, so I think when we talk about that, it's really easy to share a big pie and it's really hard to share a tiny pie. And so when we talk to First Nations and especially, you know, Chad and I have uh, probably a five or six year relationship, I would say, and we don't get along every single day of the week, but most days we do. Uh, but there's a common vision there and it's about stewardship and trying to do better by the resource and, you know, making sure there's enough out there for everyone. And I think when you do that, when you give people a good place to point their ship, they, they tend to get along. And when we have stewardship projects down South here, we work on salmon restoration or on streams and we get first nations out, we get fish and wildlife clubs out, we get naturalists out. Those people start to build relationships and they start to work together. And then the harder conversations become easier. The way it's set up right now is government wants to be the hub of the wheel and they want everybody else to be in separate rooms. And my experience with that is the outcome is bad for everyone. So I think these kind of conversations and building relationships and places where you talk about growing the resource or you actually have hands-on projects, it helps build those relationships over time because I mean a lot of this really is about relationship management and, and trust. Yeah, yeah. Um, Chad, <clears throat> when it comes to like relationships, like Jesse's talking about, like sort of more more broadly, like outside Taltan. I mean, you have guide outfitters um, that operate in Taltan territory. Um, you have resident hunters that come up there. Organizations like the Federation and stuff like how. How do you approach that? What What are you doing? How How are those relationships managed? Yeah, when I uh, when we started creating this uh, wildlife department, I'm pretty hands on, and you know, 
there were definitely some strong opinions from all kinds of Taotans in all directions around guide outfitting, BCWF, other First Nations, especially in overlap areas. And, um, you know, coming coming from the, the legal background and a mixed background myself, I just thought, well, I'm going to meet these BCWF guys. I want to meet the other leaders. Um, let's go talk to, you know, the guide outfitting association. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing once you, you really sit down how much uh, commonality you can have. But I think it's, uh, it's important for, for people to understand that our relationship with guide outfitters, it's, uh, it's a very unique one. You know, I guess the first guide outfitter in British Columbia was uh, J.C. Culbreth back in uh, 1884 in Telegraph Creek, um, the birthplace of my father. And I consider Telegraph Creek to, to be my only uh, true home. I grew up between Smithers and Telegraph Creek. So I was in Smithers during the school year and I was in Telegraph Creek during, during all the holidays, during Christmas, Easter, and my summers. And I continued that, um, that trend until I was in university. And rather than being in you know, elementary school and high school in Smithers, I was in university all over Western Canada and still over in Telegraph Creek working um, in the mineral exploration industry in the, in the summers. But uh, guide outfitting, um, we have a lot of history with, with uh, guide outfitters in Taliban territory. So um, my family, my, uh, my grandparents got a guide outfitting territory back in the early 60s uh, that's still in the family to to this day my uh, my uncle operates that the uh, the Craig family they've had a guide outfitting area um, another really strong Taliban family and um, their area has been there in their in their family I think since 1950 um, George and Grace Terza had a, uh, a guide outfitting area up in the Atlin area and, you know, John Carlick, um, Dennis family, uh, Campbell's, the Balls, all the Taliban families back in, in those days um, had people that, that worked in guide outfitting. And today we, we still have some that, that obviously own and, and operate those, those guide outfits. But it's really, um, it's really in our DNA. So when we talk about, about guide outfitting, I don't, I don't see it as a us and them. I see it as, you know, an industry in Taliban territory that's uh, sustainable, a hell of a lot more sustainable than, than the mining industry. And, um, you know, when it comes to the relationships with the BCWF, I've gone to their, um, their AGAs. I'm involved with the Taliban Guide Outfitters Association. I uh, meet often with uh, Scott Ellis, from uh, GOABC and, you know, obviously coming on onto podcasts like, uh, like this with total strangers. I mean, if it's about, if it's about all coming together to, um, to serve the best interests of our wildlife, then, uh, then I'm there. And it's, um, I have a lot of hope for, for the collaborative efforts that, that we can do together. Yeah. Well, that's, um, 
Yeah, that's some history in guide outfitting up there. Eight, late 1800s, 1884, you said, was the first one. That's that's what I read. Yeah. Wow. Huh. And, you know, a side note, because uh, I'm related to the Colberts as well, and obviously I wasn't around in 1884, so before the podcast I called up my dad and he said, yeah, that's your, uh, your great-great-grandfather. So... He was actually a, a non-Taltan that uh, you know married into the nation, but um, yeah, there's a there's a deep history there. And you know, just as a side note, those three those three families that I mentioned, um, our family, uh, Doreen and Fletcher Day, they had ten children. My dad is the oldest. Uh, the Craig family, uh, John and Dinah Craig, they had sixteen children, and then uh, George. And Grace Adzertza, they have the record. They had 20 children. Uh, 18 of them uh, made it to, you know, to, to adulthood. So when you talk about guide outfitting, you just take those three families, and I mean, there's more. We've all all Taltan people have um, have benefited from the um, from the guide outfitting industry, and it's played a, a vital role in the the economy from of our of our people from from the past well yeah the first time i ever experienced uh the early stages of hypothermia uh i got flown into a guide camp in the chesley river in behind level mountain and uh yeah was uh looked after there and warm clothes and stuff and um so jumping into uh kind of the core part of the podcast here on on grizzly hunting and and um tall ten territory i just want to maybe back people up a little bit and jesse if you want to give you know kind of give us a bit of a rundown on on the history of the grizzly hunt and the ban that came into effect in 2017 just give uh okay that history when do you want me to start? <laughs> <laughs> the uh, it started up, way before 2017. That's it. That's it. I mean, it it actually started in the 70s, at least as far as I can tell, um, and probably earlier than that. I mean, when you go way back, you can see in the BCWF AGMs, there was a time when a whole bunch of species were basically considered pests, right? And so there was kind of a move aloft to give wildlife value that they started regulating some of these hunts. Um, grizzly bears was one of the species or a number of other species. And so over time, you see this kind of shift away from the utilitarian approach. And then the pressure turns up socially and politically where you see, you know, uh, government biologist Bruce McClellan, one of the top grizzly bear ecologists in the world, uh, doing some of the best grizzly bear science, but his science is being beat up in the media by other people who most often are not grizzly bear scientists. And so you had successive governments that would not let Dr. McClellan speak to the public about his research. And so his research regularly basically got beat up by a bunch of people who weren't grizzly bear ecologists one of the most famous was actually a uh, 
a fish biologist, not a PhD or a master's in undergrad in fisheries who worked for the government. That was one of the biggest blowouts of the day. Um, so, so grizzly bear hunting moved from management to sustainability to we're going to make sure that hunting only takes males and only takes a few percent. And over time, you know, the lack of scientific defense uh, of the hunt was in partly due to the, uh, the eventual change. Um, what was posted on social media definitely didn't help hunters. Um, what was talked about a lot of times didn't help hunters. And uh, a lot of people who advocated for grizzly bear hunting were kind of left out in the cold on the science piece because the top people who knew about grizzly bear ecology weren't allowed to speak. So that brought us to this most recent government and government decision where they decided to close the grizzly bear hunt. Um, I can tell you that the former government definitely had it on their mind and uh, had it in their mind in certain parts of the province. Um, so political decision, um, when it was done in the 1990s, they said it was a science issue, despite the fact they had the best scientists in North America working for them. Uh, so everybody knows politicians. Uh, if it suits their agenda, they use it. If it doesn't, they don't. And so that got us to about uh, three years ago, I guess. And the decision to close grizzly bears came shortly uh, after the decision to continue on with Site C Dam, which likely wasn't a coincidence either. And, uh, you know, the hunting community and uh, people who cared about the science-based approach lost out. Um, but I think the other thing that, that a lot of the ENGO world thinks is that there was a win in that and that somehow that helped grizzly bears. And so Site C was more tolerable. And the reality is three years later, there's been no change in terms of the world of grizzly bear conservation, right? We haven't secured more habitat. We haven't dealt with declining salmon populations. We haven't dealt with fire suppression. Um, so, you know, if, if you're one of those people who doesn't like hunting, but likes grizzly bears, it's been a net loss for you as well. Yeah. On the, the recent paper that came out from, uh, Dr. Lamb and Dr. Ford and um, their colleagues talking about grizzly bears uh, in North America um, coexisting around people. Uh, the one that I found was really shocking was for every grizzly bear that was living um, around humans in the coexistence landscape that made it to the age 14. So age 10 is about when they become mature to reproduce females so age 14 would be a female that just probably released her first her her first offspring to replace herself that 30 grizzly bears in that landscape have died for every one that people think is a success because it's coexisting with humans and um yeah that's pretty some pretty shocking stuff when we talk about grizzly bear conservation and Sure. And that's the, you know, that's the behavioral piece is that, you know, there's not a lot of science, nobody spent the time on it, but you know, if we've been hunting grizzly bears for hundreds and thousands of years, we've selected out brave and bold bears. And we know that when we do science, we know that we can follow a lineage of females through their DNA. And we know that if mom was a problem bear or she lived close to people, and she had cubs and the cubs survived, chances are the cubs are going to be a problem. 
So mom's a problem. She ends up getting killed. Cubs end up getting killed. So that's the other thing in all of this is, you know, well, let's protect all of the bears. The reality is a whole bunch of these bears are going to get killed because they've got, seems to have a predisposition in terms of the behavioral piece. Um, and in the States, I know in the, in the Yellowstone continental divide ecosystem, they're spending millions of dollars to move bears around that are consistently problems. Mm. So again, you know, there's two options here. You can have someone shoot a problem bear, a conservation officer, and they get rid of it. Or you can have someone say, Hey, I want to pay into conservation. I want my money to go into habitat and I want to go grizzly bear hunting. Those are the two options. And so, I mean, you know, it's going to take time for that pendulum to swing where we start seeing more problem bears. Um, but I mean, Chad can speak to that more than I can in his part of the world for sure. Um, but there's a lot more to consider there than just bear hunting or not bear hunting. Yeah. Now, Chad, when, when the, the grizzly bear hunt ban came in, um, did it affect tall tan and their rights to hunt and hunt grizzly bears? I mean, obviously it took away a hunt for resident hunters and for the guide outfitters, but so, I mean, explain that a little bit, maybe tell people a little bit about how, how, um, indigenous rights uh with respect to hunting and trapping and the grizzly bear hunt band kind of all intertwine how it works okay so um maybe i'll start back uh 1982 you have the the constitution of, of canada that was put in by uh the original trudeau and um section 35 talks about um, Aboriginal rights hereby recognized and affirmed, doesn't give much guidance. Then um, for the next uh, you know, 10, 15 years, you have, you have a few conflicts with, uh, with fishing, uh, mostly with fishing actually. Uh, some of these big cases, the Sparrow case, the Vanderpeet case, and it was basically judges that had to start carving out what uh, indigenous laws were because the constitution was so vague. Some indigenous people thought, oh, our recognized are hereby, you know, affirmed and recognized. We have a right to self-government. Well, do you or do you not? We have the right to, to go get our fish and sell it. Well, do you or do you not? Judges had to determine that. So over a series of, of court case decisions, basically, the, um, the government has has basically decided that uh, indigenous peoples in any given area, I'll use Taltan as an example, that our rights to things like hunting and, and fishing extend to any practice that we can prove that um, that we did pre-contact or that we did before we were, you know, quote unquote, officially um, conquered. And there's dates for for each province, depending on, you know, when treaties came in and, and when the government came in and stuff like that. So those rights exist with, um, with all Indigenous peoples, but uh, obviously it's different in every case. And those rights, once they've been established by an Indigenous person or the, the Indigenous group, can only be limited reasonably by in special case scenarios. So for example, the Taltan have a right to harvest 
things like king salmon or other fish. But we can be limited if king salmon becomes so depleted that the government of the day says, look, this is a conservation concern. We're going to run out of this king salmon. So we have the ability to, to outlaw this to everybody, including Indigenous peoples. Uh, and then another um, another limiting factor is, is safety concerns. So if I'm, you know, if I have a Taltan right, which I do to hunt um, grizzly bears, for example, or I guess I'll get to that. Let's use moose as the example. If I have a Taltan right to hunt moose, I can do that. And I can use modern day technology to, to do that. So I can use a gun. They're not going to say you have to use obsidian arrowheads like your people did before, you know, other, other cultures got here. Um, but, uh, oh, I don't want to lose my train of thought here. Oh, but, but safety, safety can come into it. So I can't use uh, landmines or something that could, you know, be unreasonably safe for other people to, to catch that moose. So to answer your question on grizzly bears, um, yes, we undoubtedly have uh, a right to, um, to harvest grizzly bears because grizzly bears have been in Taltan territory forever and we've hunted them and, and the other animals that are in that territory forever. So yeah, Jesse me mentioned two options, but actually the third option is that you just leave the problem with the indigenous people and say to them, use your indigenous rights and title and you guys deal with with all these predators because our conservation officers don't want to shoot them they're not even around and you know we've now taken away the ability by uh, by other groups like guide outfitters and resident hunters to to help with this right now when when the ban came in um t tell me if this is true or not are there restrictions on the retention of the hide for indigenous hunters for tall town because because i remember that was there were there were some issues around that and and i was under the impression that it was like if a grizzly bear was harvested for for food um the hide was turned over i is that is that a real thing no i no. don't think so okay. i mean maybe Maybe that would be, uh, maybe some hunters ran into that, but uh, that would be BS because, uh, okay. and maybe this is a good thing to explain is that um, where there was a lot of tension and, and disagreement with the position taken by the courts and upheld by, you know, other jurisdictions in Canada at a provincial, territorial, or federal level, is that although Indigenous people have the ability to practice those rights that I kind of explained in a nutshell, um, those rights usually don't extend to commercial rights associated with that. So in other words, yes, I can go and I can harvest a grizzly bear for food or ceremonial purposes, but I can't take that skull or those paws or that hide and then turn around and sell it to, you know, a non-Taltan person. Um, if I sold it to a Taltan person, that's probably a gray area. If I traded it, quote unquote, traded it to a Taltan person, that's probably a gray area. But I unquestionably cannot sell it to on the open market or anything like that because the government has been very clear in the courts. And I'm not saying I agree with them, but um, it's it's law that Indigenous people can't can't sell the 
the products, the resources, the wildlife and fisheries resources, unless we have an agreement um, with the province or with the federal government and or with the federal government to say that, you know, yes, we can catch this many as a indigenous government or as a Taliban government, whatever, and, and sell them commercially. Cause some governments, some indigenous governments do have that on things like uh, with fisheries licenses. Right. So Taltan families that own the guide outfitting territories that we talked before, their rights to hunt grizzly bears would not be extended to that business to carry on bringing clients in, correct? No. That that would be considered the commercial? Yeah, definitely. So again, I'm sure you'll always have Indigenous people that will you know, argue this and understandably so, and you'll always have a lot of other Indigenous people on social media encouraging them to go do something that clearly isn't supported um, by, by the, you know, the, the Crown and the provincial laws. But uh, you're correct, uh, a guide outfitting area wouldn't be able to, to do that as a, as a guide outfitter. Um, but I will say this, I, I wasn't sure when I was going to bring it up, I know that you're probably going to ask me about it, but I'm going to I'm going to say this now. And any Indigenous people out there that heard it from me first, they owe me later on if uh, if they do this. Um, there are gray areas with things like predator management, and one thing that I would say is a gray area, and that some Indigenous people could do. And I think about this from the guide outfitting context, and I think about this as a person that, you know, has traveled to many countries myself and done some pretty amazing um, things and exhilarating things out there. It would not be illegal for an Indigenous person to create a business where they charge people to join them as they practice their, their ancestral rights. So in other words, if I'm a Taltan person, and I want to go out there and harvest grizzly bears and I'm still utilizing the hide and I'm still utilizing it in a, in a cultural fashion. And I just happen to charge three or four or five people from Europe or the United States or Japan to join me and watch me, maybe even help me. Um, that's not illegal. If they take the hide or if I sell them the hide or something like that, that would be illegal. And I'm just pointing out that gray area because if we as Indigenous people are going to have to take on the burden of managing predators because the province doesn't have the balls to do the right thing, then this might be something that more and more Indigenous people may need to do because something like harvesting grizzly bears or harvesting other predators like black black bears or wolves obviously takes um, a lot of effort and, and a lot of money. And um, it's just a great area that I wanted to, to point out to uh, <laughs> the listeners. Very interesting. Huh, that's very interesting. When, when the pro- There's two interesting things I want to get both of your perspectives on here. So the grizzly, the grizzly bear ban hunt for the province of British Columbia was an election platform promise of the government that's in power now so like so there's an issue i think around that 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 would be interesting to talk about is how can you make an election promise 
um, that would involve consultation with Taltan. And then the other part of that is, is how was the Taltan consulted leading up to that decision? So we were not um, consulted leading up to that decision. Obviously, the uh, NDP had not been in power for, I think, uh, 16 years or something um, before that. So they didn't come and, and speak to us, and we certainly didn't uh, encourage them to run on that platform. And, um, yeah, when, when I found out, I was... I was pretty shocked for, for a couple of reasons. Um, one, I know for a fact that our, you know, MLA is not an idiot and he comes from, he comes from the North, right? And uh, he knows, and he lives amongst people that, uh, that have been attacked by grizzly bears. And I'm sure there's a, there's a few that live around him that uh, would, would like the decision, but um you know, he, he's not a dummy and he knows that uh, it was an irresponsible decision. And, uh, yeah, I was, I was very surprised. And I'll tell you, you know, you have these issues that come up from, from time to time when you're in, in politics and you're always going to have some people that are just, they're always angry. They're miserable about everything. They're calling you about every little thing. And then you have other people that might call you twice in five years and you know when they call you they're they're really fired up and, and they're calling you for good reason and you know i had these these people um these these hunters and they weren't guide outfitters they weren't people that were um you know colored in any way and they just said to me like chad i know you're not an avid hunter and, and stuff like this yourself but i'm telling you right now this decision is absolutely awful and you got to work hard to make sure that this gets reversed because nothing kills grizzlies except bullets nothing and if you allow this to happen our ungulates our fish are going to continue to uh to dwindle and um this is just going to be a this is going to have a, a very bad impact on on the taltan people so when it first happened you know no, I spoke out about it a little bit and I was confident that, you know, we could work with, uh, with the NDP to at least reverse it in our territory and at least create a process that was more respectful to reconciliation efforts with indigenous people. And, you know, if there's other nations that want to outlaw the hunt, then I would never pass judgment on them, but to just do a blanket thing around, around BC and especially in the north where we have more wildlife than people um, very irresponsible and although I'm very happy and impressed for the most part with John Horgan's uh, leadership this was extremely stupid and I'm very disappointed and I'm hopeful that if they are successful again in the next election that uh he'll do the right thing and he'll work with us to, to get this reversed in our territory. Yeah. Um, Jesse, your thoughts on the public consultation kind of elements of leading up to the grizzly bear decision. Was it normal business as usual, not existent like Chad? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it was a political decision and, 
you know, that's the irony of all this. And you talk about what was in the platform. Well, there were other things in the platform. New wildlife the platform said they were going to dedicate all the license fees. They were going to find other funding mechanisms. They were going to set objectives for wildlife management. They were going to get everybody in the same room. They were going to recover wildlife. Guess what? We're three years into it now. How much of that has happened? Zero. So, I mean, this comes back to the problem with politicians is that, you know, I'm now more and more becoming a firm believer that they should really have nothing to do with wildlife management. And quite frankly, you know, you'll see all the social media on DFO as well. I mean, politicians need to get out of natural resource management because they're looking for a four-year term and they're managing wildlife and fish at best on a four-year term. They don't invest to recover the resource. They just want to cut it up. And quite frankly, you know, a lot of the anxiety between First Nations and non-First Nations communities is caused by politicians divide and conquer and the grizzly bear thing is no different and you know this government says we're all about reconciliation and undrip well clearly they're not because what chad is saying is they want grizzly bear hunting in their territory and the government's saying no so you know you can't suck and blow at the same time but politicians are pretty good at trying <laughs> yeah um so was it last week in the news, Chad, or or the week before? Um, you were quoted in a story, or it was a release. Um, it seems like you're kind of s- stepping up the conversation again, and you know you came out and and ask um, publicly for the government to reverse the the ban on the grizzly bear hunting in Tall Ten Territory. Maybe just go into the what, what led up to that that conversation at this point in time yeah well i mean i guess it's a few things i mean i take a lot of pride in and like i said really trying to hear out um different perspectives and and work well with uh with other stakeholders and this was just one of those issues where it, it just become too political with the province. And, you know, when you have the minister in charge and you have all of these people in the NDP basically saying to you, you know, Chad, you're right, but, you know, you're right and we're sorry and there's just nothing we can do. And, you know, it's like it, it, I, I've just never been a part of an issue before in um, in governance, I don't think, with the province where so many people are just knowingly doing something so stupid and harmful to vulnerable groups, you know? And I, I mean, I don't want to say that as though I'm, I'm saying Taltans are, uh, you know, we're weak, we're vulnerable, like hell no, we're a very strong people. We'll take care of the Grizzlies ourselves if we have to. But when you're talking about Northern BC, you know, that's already disadvantaged with the lack of infrastructure and, and things like this. And, you know, we, we don't have all the industries that they have in the South and stuff like that. And, and to, to make a decision like this without holistically engaging with us and, and just respecting our views, it's, it's just very, very uh, disappointing. So I'm at a stage now where I'm going to call it out for what it is, which is, which is BS. 
I don't expect MDP to deal with it with this election, but um, they are going to have to deal with it if they're they're successful. Because I can tell you right now that as long as I'm in power, I'm not going to um, continue to play into some of the other industrial developments that NDP wants to do in our territory if they're not going to respect our wishes with um, with wildlife management because we have all the mines that we need right now. Uh, we're on a good path. We have, you know, 40 million in our Taltan Heritage Trust that's not slowing down anytime soon. We don't need any more mining if, uh, if we can't get to a better place with, uh, with wildlife management. And I've just, I've really just lost patience with, um, with what I've been hearing from them. And I'm gonna speak out about it. Some people aren't gonna like it, um, that's fine with me. I, I got into this job to, to do right by the Taltan people. And, you know, while, while Jesse's over there bashing politicians and hurting my feelings, I will say that some politicians out there do focus on making the right decisions, not just the popular decisions. And the difference between, you know, a lot of First Nation politicians and other politicians, um, I'm going to have to show my face in Taltan territory for the rest of my life. And I know as somebody, as the leader now, being judged by the behavior of you know some of my relatives that my children are gonna be uh, judged by the behavior of, of their father when they show their face in Taltan territory. And I want people to say, you know what? Your father was a bit of an asshole sometimes, but he stood up for the, for the right things. And um, even when he was unpopular, so I, I'm actually kind of enjoying this. And, you know, I have in the background called out some other First Nation leaders that have said to me that they know that this thing should be reversed, but it's just not popular and they don't want to be, um, they don't want to be vocal on it. And I would rather be unpopular and have ungulate populations for my children than be popular and have none. So that's my take on it. Yeah. So what, what is what is the community telling you? What are the elders telling you about grizzly bears and uh, in Taltan territory, bigger picture predators uh, kind of all together? Like what's, what's changing? What's happening? Well, honestly, I have never received any pushback from a Taltan hunter or a Taltan elder that grew up in the territory. I've had pushback from maybe a handful of, of Taltan people, mostly, you know, millennials that get their information from Facebook and don't come home much, <laughs> but you know, there's 4,000 members. And if five millennials are going to be the ones giving me a hard time on, on Facebook, I can, I can live with that. Um, the elders, the guide outfitters, the hunters, the, the young people that know the territory, um, the people in the territory, it, it's pretty much unanimous that everybody agrees we're seeing more grizzlies than ever before. We're seeing less ungulates than ever before. The behavior is changing. And um, this is something that that is really serious. And we want to, um, to deal with it before somebody gets seriously hurt. And I'll tell you something. If somebody gets seriously hurt, do you think Doug Donaldson or John Horgan's going to be at that funeral? or be at their bedside to, to nurse them back to health or to bury that person? No. And this isn't a joke. Like in the Yukon, a woman and her baby 
were killed, right? We saw that. Yep. In Plinkett territory, I don't know if it was a year or two, two years ago, a woman was chased out of her cabin and killed by a grizzly bear. Like, and there's there's been Taltan people that that have been, um, you know, stalked by grizzly bears and, and they've had to kill them. Like, this isn't this isn't a joke, and it's uh, it's very dangerous back home. And I want to make sure that we're making smart wildlife management decisions. And this was not smart. It's dangerous. It's irresponsible. And uh, it, it needs to be reversed in, in Taltan territory. And it probably needs to be reversed in a lot of other areas, too. Yeah. Now, has, has predator management been part of Taltan culture you know, from what you understand from elders, was it was it something that had to be done or was done uh, consistently, periodically? What what's the what's your history there? Yeah, so there's um, it was it was definitely done in the past, and the way that it it worked in the past is, and I didn't explain this earlier, so I'm I'm glad you asked that. But we're nomadic people, right? Um, there's a phrase that I absolutely love and, and no disrespect to any of the coastal first nations that have totem poles. Cause I love totem poles, but there's a story that, uh, one of my distant cousins tells, and he goes up to his, his great grandfather. And he says to him when he's a kid, he says to his grandfather, you know, why don't we have any totem poles? And his grandfather looked at him like he was crazy. And he said, we don't have totem poles because we we're too busy shedding blood so that you had the biggest territory of anybody like, you know, and, uh, but the reality is that we, we were fighting to have a, a big territory. We were nomadic. We didn't have the ocean. So we were, we were following the routes of, of different animals. Obviously we would all conjugate and trade with the Clinkets uh, at the Stikine river and, and do some pieces like that. And, what uh, what the responsibilities were of, of each clan back in those days is you you had hunters and they they knew where the dens were and we had um, Taltan bear dogs they were called these Taltan bear dogs were actually um, they were in the Guinness Book of, of World Records at some point as the rarest you know purebred breed in the world when when they were about to disappear and unfortunately um, they. they did disappear because with the with all the colonization and the, the terrible things that Taltan's experienced along with other indigenous people, I there just wasn't anybody paying attention to the to the breed, I guess. And and we did lose that breed, but with the Taltan bear dogs and with our really experienced hunters, they knew where the wolf dens were. And when they felt like the wolf populations were were too high or getting out of control, um, you know, it's a uh, it's sad for all those people out there that, that, that don't want to hear me say this, but the reality is they went in there, they had a special tool uh, if they had to, and they would, um, they would take all the, the wolf pups out of there and, and they would get rid of them. And they would do this season after season sometimes if they felt they had to. Um, sometimes they would leave one pup, sometimes they would leave two. But even back then when the wildlife populations were abundant and there were you know herds in the in the hundreds maybe even you know over a thousand at at uh at level mountain in places like like this even back then uh our taltan people still 
went and managed uh, wolf populations like this. And I don't know if they actively managed bears in the same way from a predator management standpoint, but they definitely also uh, went, after, went after bears. They went after black bears, they went after grizzly bears. These Taltan bear dogs were, um, were incredible. And they would sniff out these bear dens. They would dig right into the bear den sometimes. They would, they would fight the bears and get the bears out of the bear den. And then they're, um, you know, the, the hunters would be right there with the obsidian spears and they would, they would kill the bear right there. So these, uh, these bear dogs were, um, were amazing. And I, I just want to tell a quick side story about that. You know, these Taltan bear dogs, people can Google them, but, uh, they were so prized and they were so useful during hunting that there's actually stories of, um, of outsiders coming into Taltan territory. And at one point, um, forget if it was a, tra a trapper or so something, maybe someone from the Hudson Bay company. I, I don't remember, but, um, they killed a, a Taltan bear dog and, um, they got killed by the, by the Taltan owner. And then later on, I was, I was talking to my dad earlier. And again, we talked a bit about these, uh, these bear dogs. And he said that, you know, there was a story with um with one of his his relatives was working on the the telegraph creek line that's why it's called telegraph creek i obviously wasn't around when this thing was was getting put up and everything but he said that there was a non-taltan working with a couple taltans on that line and he had a large dog one of this non-taltan guy and this large dog had killed um a taltan bear dog and the Taltan people basically told him that if you don't leave immediately, when that owner finds out that your dog was responsible for the death of his, his bear dog, he, he's probably going to kill you. <laughs> like these things were that prized um, by our people. And they, um, they, protected, they protected our people. They were, you know, avid hunting companions. And maybe just one other side story. My uh, my stepfather, uh, Dempsey Collison, also a, a former guide outfitter and, and a very respected elder now. Um, his father is a non-Taltan guy who had dogs of his own, and he was saying that you know he was he was just in awe when he saw these these Taltan bear dogs when he came into to Taltan country because they were just fearless. And they would they would bite the bear and they would be in the bear's face and he said there was just something about the shriek of that dog and everything they just absolutely tormented these bears and um it's just really interesting right because we can talk about going back in time and, and doing some of these things but the reality is that we can't totally do it the way that we used to without our taltan bear dogs and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of stories about that, but um, your question was about predator management, and the answer is that absolutely, we uh, we managed the we hunted the bears, um, and we definitely managed the the wolves uh, on purpose. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not. I mean, it's not, it's not um, like. I, it's not a persecution thing, right? Like, like Taltan didn't want to like rid the landscape of these animals to make life easier and more ungulate, ungulates on the landscape for hunting. But it, it's about this 
being part of the landscape, hunting the other ungulates, and recognizing that balance between that whole system. I mean, is that sort of a fair reflection of the thought? I think so. I think absolutely. Because you have to remember, too, that Taltan people of all of the iconic, amazing creatures in the territory, we have a wolf clan and we have a crow clan. So Taltan's absolutely um, respected wolves and, and many of them, you know, believe that one day they'll come back as wolves. But um, there was also an understanding that if we're going to be sharing the same resource and if we can fall on hard times where there's not as many ungulates or they take a different path or, you know, who knows how, how difficult life was back then in a subarctic climate when you're literally um, hiking and walking, you know, probably hundreds to thousands of miles sometimes um, in, a, in a particular season. Uh, it, was, it was important to have an abundance of game and to, to pull on the, the levers you could as, as stewards of the land. Yeah. Now you're, um, you're mentioning before, uh, when we were talking that like wildlife in Taltan territory are changing. Like, um, when we're talking about the elk bugle at the start of our podcast. So, uh, I mean, I understand you're seeing people are seeing elk, cougars, um, bison, It, yeah, I, it, that those that. are new. Is that relatively recent? Like, I mean, recent is in like the last few decades. Yeah, definitely. Um, I can't speak to when elk uh, started coming into the to the territory. I believe it was before my time, but it's not like we have traditional Taltan knowledge from a hundred years ago about about elk um, or, or about uh, buffalo. I mean, I've never heard that. And, but what I do know and what I've been told is that, you know, the buffalo from the north have been slowly moving their way south. I think that sometimes they're in the, the northern tip of, of Taltan territory. Um, I know that elk are in Taltan territory now. I've, I've seen them a, a little bit, but I, I'm seeing them more and more. Um, again, not not as a hunter, but just as somebody that's um, you know cruising that road uh, quite often. I mean, before COVID, um, you wouldn't be able to find too many people that that travel that uh, that highway and in and out of Telegraph Creek more than more than I did. But um, yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of changes happening. I mean, even as a kid, man, I used to see so many frogs at our at our family ranch so many grasshoppers, so many strawberries and raspberries. And now it's just, it's so dry. Uh, the frogs are gone. Not as many grasshoppers. Some of the, uh, the stream we used to have running through the property, um, is gone. Strawberries are gone. I mean, there's still some plants there, but nothing with, with berries like we used to have. So yeah, I mean, climate, climate change is, is real and it's having an impact and obviously two years ago we we had a a devastating fire that uh took out you know my my family's 
ranch and all of the uh the structures on it and you know 40 structures in telegraph creek were lost i think around 20 people lost their homes and it's um it was it was pretty devastating but you know we're very hardworking, resilient people we're bouncing back we're not uh we're not crying about it and um you know we're still getting stronger so uh -huh. it is what it is. uh what about white-tailed deer uh, you know, we see lots of stories where white-tailed deer kind of expanding, like, almost into Alaska now. Is that something that's new, or, or are they in the Taltan territory? There's some deer, but not not a lot, um, at least not along, you know, the highway. So I've seen a few between uh, Deese Lake and Telegraph, but I, I haven't seen any in, in Taltan territory beyond that, but you know, there's a lot of back roads that go into to other um, habitats, right? Like when I was um, hiking between Iskut and Telegraph Creek, we never we never did make it to Telegraph Creek. We just made it to Buckley Lake. But I, it was amazing to see how the mushrooms and the habitat and the berries and and everything had changed as uh, as we were hiking. And you know, as someone that goes around to a lot of these exploration camps. I went to the um, the old SNP uh, camp, and you guys, you, if you lived in Deese Lake, you may remember the the SNP project and stuff like that. But when I was there, I just thought, oh my god, I had no idea that we had trees this freaking huge in Taltan territory because most of my time in the territory is uh, is in Telegraph Creek. Um, and I didn't realize, you know, all of the, these other ecosystems that we have in some of the, the corners of the area, because it's pretty hard to cover an area the size of Portugal when you're going back and forth for your education from other territories, right? Yeah, totally. Now, in the, in the story that was uh, in the news last week, um, you know, where you're, you know, asking for the reversal of, of the grizzly hunt in Taltan territory, you mentioned that, uh, that you were going to go on a grizzly hunt yourself this fall. Is that, is that still your plans? What's, what's, what's your motivation? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my motivation, first of all, I'm not I'm not a hunter. Um, anybody that wants to disagree with anything I've said today because I hurt their feelings and they want to discredit me, you can say that I'm not a hunter. You can say that I have ancestors and relatives that are guide outfitters, whatever. But um, I made a commitment a couple of years ago to to our people. In fact, shortly after the grizzly bear ban, that um, I was so fired up about this that I was going to start hunting grizzly bears and you know my family and others thought holy crap like chad's going to start becoming a hunter all of a sudden after you know 30 plus years and if he's going to be getting grizzlies because he says it's important for ungulate management then you know maybe i will too and um because because sometimes you just have to be the the change that that you want to see and and i'm i've been encouraging taltans and in, in newsletters and in conversations and you know, we can sit here and we can beat up the province and I'm certainly doing my job to push them to, to reverse this and do the right thing. But, you know, if they don't do the right thing, 
we're still the ones that need to live with the impacts of all of this. And we're still the ones that are going to have to continually see dwindling salmon and ungulate populations and an influx of, of safety concerns and problems with grizzlies if we don't kind of take it into our own hands. So I'm doing it, um, you know, to motivate Taltan people to spread awareness. And yeah, when I, uh, when I get that grizzly, the first week of September, I'm going to put it up on Facebook. I'm going to, it's going to be public. I'm going to say hashtag I save ungulates. People uh, around the world are probably going to hate me and bash me. And I really don't care because I trust my elders. I trust my community members. I trust the science that I've read um, on grizzly bears around, you know, Taltan, Taltan areas like Alaska and in that pocket of the world. And I believe it's the right thing to, I believe it's the right thing to do. So that's why I'm doing it. Huh. Very interesting. Now, kind of from the bigger, bigger discussion, the bigger context of, um, you know, the province talking with, with you and reestablishing like, uh, the hunt in Taltan territory. If that doesn't happen, you said earlier, you don't think it's going to happen in the current term. Um, if that's something that would get picked up um, with the current government in the next election or, or, or whoever, if that doesn't happen and predator management is that important, like to tall 10, um, I, I would assume there's only so long that you can talk to the province and ask and, and, you know, make these statements or, or, you know, or, or start, but you, I assume you're going to have to, start something more formal yourself a, a program what is that something you're thinking about now or are you going to cross that bridge when it comes but what's your plan if the government just continued to says say no yeah we um we've already got plans in in place with our with our wildlife department um we know that we can work with with guide outfitters and they're happy to uh to work alongside Taltan people that, that want to practice um, predator management. And uh, yeah, we've, we've been doing a lot of the wildlife department's been doing a lot of uh, work with, uh, with learning about, about wolf behavior. And I know they've got a lot of plans with, um, with more wolf studies to make sure that they recognize where the packs are, uh, what the packs are feeding on, and for those packs that they feel are, are getting too large or taking out too many ungulates, uh, they have different um, plans in place. And they're not, they're not, they don't have any definite plans right now because they're still going to do, you know, further studies. But it's not going to be one of those situations where we're going to study it and study it down to zero. Uh, we've already been uh, trapping, trapping wolves. They're they're doing. Um, a whole bunch of coursework right now on on trapping grizzlies uh i would have assumed that you know we would have gone about it a different way uh i would love to see a grizzly trap i've never seen one but those things must be uh pretty damn big because <laughs> they're they're talking about a grizzly trapping program and yeah they're going to be working with uh with the locals and with uh Taltan elders and probably a bit with 
with guide outfitters as well and people that know the area the, the best to make sure that we can get the most bang for our buck, so to speak, and, and make sure that we can start managing predators ourselves if we have to. Yeah. And, and that is that, is that philosophy, that strategy kind of extend just sort of beyond, beyond predator management or holistically wildlife management in Toltan territory is that, you know, like Jesse said, we're seeing this shrinking pie all, all over the province. And is this also something that you're looking at, you know, being more, taking more into Taltan control? Yes, uh, definitely. Um, obviously, we we pivoted and, and I know that um, you guys and, and others want to to hear a lot about the predator pieces, but, um, you know, we could talk for another five hours about the amazing work that the, the team and the negotiators have done with, um, with working with guide outfitters. I'm sure there's been a couple of initiatives with BCWF. We're working with the, the cask and the clinket to the North through a, through a collaborative, um, society that we have called the three nations. And we've been getting more data than um, than ever before on all kinds of species that that before the government was just guessing or, or putting in these um, these counting mechanisms that um, that to us you know did not make any sense. They don't follow best practices. The numbers that they were spitting out you know didn't make a lot of sense. There was a situation there one time where they were in a helicopter for um, a couple hours and they saw one caribou and they. Told the wildlife guardian you know well according to the model that we use you know that's that's like seeing 18 because we got to put it into the system and the guardian came down he's like i don't know what the hell is going on but we saw one caribou and he wants us to communicate to Taltan that there's 18 out there <laughs> and uh you know things like that right like there's there's so many issues with the way that that the government is doing things so we've been doing things from bear den surveys with, uh, with the logging companies. We did, uh, we, we've got a collaring program with uh, stone sheep. I think the, uh, I don't want to get these names wrong, but the wild stone, like the wild sheep foundation. Yeah. Wild sheep uh, found society of British Columbia. Yep. Right. Um, we've got, um, a collaring program now with, uh, with the Santa Glody herd of, of caribou. Um, the numbers coming back from there and some other numbers around its Iza have uh, have not been good. And, you know, the government didn't didn't do the data collection on, on this stuff for, for years and they were still giving out tags. So a lot of work uh, has been has been being done there. And, you know, uh, Lance Naguan is our director. Um, my cousin, um, Jared Kwok. Is, is one of our uh, lands guardians, Clement Tashutes, another one of our lands guardians, Brianna Tashutes, another one. And, you know, before, before this podcast ends, I just have to say that, you know, these people, they're, they're just amazing because one of the things that's really tricky for us in, in Taltan territory, and, and one of the reasons why I want to defend the, the guide outfitting industry as well is that, it's tricky now to get people to dedicate themselves to a lifestyle around things like um, 
wildlife management because the reality is that when you have mine the mining industry in your backyard we have kids you know we have 18 year olds that can get out of high school and go up to the mine site and make six figures tax-free when they're 18 years old and all these people that i named that are part of our our wildlife team they don't make six figures and all of them could but they decide to come and work for the Town central government because they they genuinely care about um about wildlife so i just want to tell you know our, our wildlife department and our fisheries department who i don't know as well and they just came under tcg but like i love those people and they are true Taltan, you know warriors in the modern day context because they could be making a lot more money and putting up with a lot less bullshit because you have to put up with a lot of crap when you're part of any indigenous government but they're still with us because they care that much about um, healthy fish and wildlife populations for our future generations. So I, I definitely have to, to say that before we yeah. end today. Yeah. Um, Jesse, what, um, what are your, what stands out here? Um, what Chad's been saying, big picture, what, what resonates with you? Well, I think the, the good thing is I just, you know, this is a, a great format for Chad to get his message out is the way I feel. And he said, we've, we've got our relationship going back a few years now and we talk pretty regularly. And I think there's, um, you know, I think, I think the hardest part, the hardest hurdle in all of this provincially is getting over the lack of fish and the lack of wildlife. And I mean, today was like, DFO day and there are no salmon left and everybody wants to fish but we're not talking about making more fish and I think you know where the tall tanner at and where Chad's at is he's saying you know we need to do a good job of taking care of and stewarding this resource and we want to do it collaboratively and I think that's a big message um, you know that's not it's not a shared message across the province and the provincial government and the federal government. It's very, very convenient for them to just G to G this stuff and G to Ging, you know, government to government negotiations for this stuff often means that, you know, when it comes out in the wash, there's very little focus on fish and wildlife at the end of it. There's focus on access to it, but there's no focus. There's no insurance on making sure that fish and wildlife is there for future generations. There's nothing about managing predators. There's nothing about taking care of habitat. There's nothing about let's make sure that we leave this better than we got it. And so, you know, I guess my uh, thoughts on this are, I just wanted Chad to be able to get out what he's been telling me about and uh, you know, support him with the progressive message and the fact that, you know, the tall town are moving forward and they're bringing people along with them and they're focused on the resource. And, and I think that's, it's just a phenomenal message. Yeah, definitely. What, um, what do you see the future like for resident hunters, BC wildlife Federation members, um, supporting this in tall town territory? Yeah, well, it, 
Yeah, I mean, we have talked about this and been brought up again about putting an MOU together and getting everyone on the same page and moving forward. I mean, part of part of one of the challenges that I see in all of this is that for First Nations, this 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 happens in their backyard and it happens by people outside of their community. And you know, Chad's saying you know they've got strong relationships and they have tall tents own got outfitter territories. You know, they, there isn't a lot of localized benefit from resident hunters coming in from other parts of the province. So, you know, part of what we've been, you know, talking to the province about is having round tables across the province and having that money go back to the resource. And then there is a localized benefit from hunting, right? That money goes back in to make sure that we're taking care of that resource. And the province has, you know, they've been, they said they were going to do it. They haven't done it. So, you know, a big part of this around the natural resource piece is that there has to be a localized benefit and and that applies for hunters as well right everybody who buys a hunting license you see wishes that all that money went back to wildlife that's what they all think like if i buy a tag it should go right back into where you know what i'm doing and so uh yeah i think i think those are some of the bigger issues that we gotta convince government to do um but the discussions with chad is that they want to do that together and i think that if First Nations and people who care about wildlife, non-First Nations come together and sit down with government and say, look, this is the way it's going to be. You don't give government a lot of, of wiggle room. Yeah. You know, the, the status quo is government wants to be the hub of the wheel and they want everybody off on the edges of the spokes. So they'll go talk to First Nations. They'll talk to resident hunters. They'll talk to ENGOs. They'll talk to ranchers. They'll talk to guide outfitters. And by the end of it, everybody is pissed off and they all hate each other. And government walks out of the room and says, well, we got a deal. You guys live with it and implement it. And nobody, very often, nobody's happy. So this is a different approach and, you know, I see this as the way of the future and it's not all sunny days and smooth ways. Um, but I just, yeah, I, I think this is the way that you build relationships and that you take care of wildlife in BC. Yeah. That's a good, <clears throat> good message. Um, Chad, what, uh, what's your advice, um, for resident hunters, uh, in BC outside of Taltan territory? Um, what can they do to support Taltan and this vision of predator management and more abundance of wildlife in the territory? Send in the blank checks, baby. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, well, you know, one thing I, I want to say, and it's, it's not off topic. It's what, what I thought you were going to ask. And then you kind of went in a different direction. But when we talk about uh, reconciliation, mm. I always tell people that, you know, nobody knows what the hell that means most of the time. And everybody's got their own, you know, definition of it. Kind of like everyone. Again, I've been listening to your podcast around, you know, people have their own hunter ethics and all this kind of stuff. And for me, for those indigenous leaders or those people that, that want to be leaders, you know, I always break it down in four ways. So reconciliation at its core has to start with the individual. You know, you need to, to get your shit together 
and live a good life and be healthy and do what you, you got to do. Right. It's, uh, it's like when you talk to your, your shrink with your wife or something, they say, you know, nobody can make you happy, but you, if you don't fix yourself, you're not going to be able to work it out with any relationships, blah, blah, blah. So it starts there. And then the second thing with indigenous people is that you got to work it out internally. And this is a really, really hard step for so many of our people. It's so easy to sit there and start pointing fingers at, you know, other First Nations around you, and of course the the government, because the the history is just it's just terrible. You know the, the residential school history, the misappropriation of land, and then the, the management of of our children, the management of our fish, of our wildlife, of of everything. I mean, from an indigenous standpoint, just about everything. It's been it's been terrible. So, but you need to do that reconciliation internally because if you get to the table as a first nation government or leadership or whatever and you don't have that internal reconciliation and you don't have your shit together as a government and as a people or as a community you're just going to be spinning your wheels because you know it's like it's like my uncle said I mean in a situation like that you're going to be taking arrows from one side and bullets on the other side like you need to come in there strong. You need to have that internal reconciliation. Third portion, I, I call it lateral reconciliation. Hopefully you can you can work things out with your neighbors. Um, not everybody is like, and maybe I shouldn't say say anything because I don't know the history, but I would think I would think an area like Haida Gwaii, you know, that maybe they don't have overlap issues like some of us, uh, some of us other indigenous peoples. But those overlap issues cause delays, they cause problems, and you need to work that out laterally. And then, hopefully, if you can do all those things, you can start to talk about reconciliation with others. The only reason that Taltan can have a good relationship with Guide Outfitters, can begin to talk about having a good relationship with BCWF and with the province, is because we've worked so hard internally. And it's not going to happen overnight. And a lot of these nations think that, you know, with the right leader or the right this or the right that, it's going to, it's just going to magically happen. And when I've been brought in to, and I haven't been brought in nearly as much as I should be, but that's okay because I'm busy. But when I've been brought in um, with governments or industry to to deal with the tension with other indigenous peoples, I've said to them, you know, I'm I'm sorry, but this is probably going to take like two or three years at, at least to get this nation in a place where they can meaningfully have these conversations. Um, so your, your best bet is to invest in really good governance for the, this people, because this, this is a community that's seriously, seriously hurting and they're not going to be able to make decisions and they're not going to be able to come to the table with you and, and work with you meaningfully as the long-term partners, just like, you know, some really dysfunctional man or woman that's lived through way too much. You know, they get with that next partner and that partner's like, whoa, what the hell? This had nothing to do with me. I've been doing everything I'm supposed to be doing. And it's not you, it's, it's them. And I'm not saying, my point is reconciliation comes in all these directions and we have to take responsibility internally before we can do it externally. I think Tal Tan are in a pretty good place now. So, Getting to your question around what can other um, stakeholders do, I think that we're at a place now 
where, you know, with Taltans anyways, Taltans should get the support from BCWF. We've already got the support from Guide Outfitters because quite frankly, they, they need us. Um, and resident hunters need us too, whether they understand that yet or, or not, because I know some of them do. Some of them are looking ahead and realizing like there's no future if we're not working together. And others may not, but that's okay. You're always going to have people that aren't aware. And it's our job as leaders to, to educate them and, and come together to, to educate our respective um, constituents. But yeah, I would say people got to educate themselves. People got to respect and learn about, um, you know, indigenous self-determination. I always say that... Um, this country, so many people are confused and they think, you know, this is racist. It's racist that, that indigenous people have this and these special rights. And when you say indigenous or you say Aboriginal or First Nations or Indian, whatever, whatever term you're going to use, when you, when you bundle all that together in those words, it, it is kind of a race. But you got to break it down. Taltan don't have these rights and title because of our race. Taltan, Nishka, Haida, Cree, whatever. They have that, that rights and title, not because of a race. They have it because they inherited it from their ancestors. The same way that, you know, Donald Trump's children are going to be billionaires because they inherited something that came from, from him. We got this not because of our race and because the color of a skin or the eyes or whatever, we inherited it. We have rights to the land base. And I think that the more and more that people learn, the more they'll realize they are so much better putting their trust in the indigenous people to manage some, something that's connected to their identity and connected to their culture that they're going to have to live with forever. They're much better supporting that group and working with that group to manage it together rather than leaving it to the government because, um, you know, it, it just hasn't gone well. And, and I totally agree with Jesse, like these government, these government people that, that are making decisions in areas that they've never been to with people that they'll never have to answer to when they're done their eight years and go off into the sunset with their pension and everything else. Um, it's just not a, it's just not a good system. So I know that not all indigenous peoples are organized and I wouldn't be comfortable telling the average BC resident hunter to go and support this local group or that local group. Cause it depends where they are in their development. But I'm very, very comfortable telling resident hunters that they should support Taltan in our 11% of what is known as British Columbia. And I am very confident telling you we will do a hell of a lot better job managing our fish and managing our wildlife. And we're willing to do it in a collaborative model versus the model that we have with the province, which is not working. No, that's a lot of talking and I'm sorry, but I try to set these things up holistically so people understand that it's not black and white. Taltan are a very distinct group with very distinct 
strengths and very distinct weaknesses compared to others. And it's like, it's like Europe, you know, and I explain this to investors from the mining community and from other communities. I say, you know, if you were going into Europe and someone said to you, you know, invest in Europe because Europe is a great place to invest. Well, are we talking about Norway or are we talking about Greece? Because there's a big difference whether I'm putting my money on Norway or I'm putting my money on Greece. You know what I'm saying? There's a big difference between putting your belief and the capacity of the Taltan nation versus some other nations. And I hope all of us get there, but it's a journey for sure. Thank you. That was a very powerful message. Um, I think that's exactly what we're hoping for. And um, I think what, what listeners were hoping for. Um, This has been an amazing conversation. I want to thank both of you for taking the time tonight. It's late hour. Um, really appreciate this. This is, uh, amazing. Um, both of you, Chad, um, this platform here, this podcast is available, uh, to have conversations about anything in the future. If you ever, ever want to get on and bring another guest on or, or, or whatever. Um, it's here for both of you. Um, cause I think this is, this is why we're doing this. So thank you. Yeah. Um, Chad, you said you've been listening to some of our, uh, some of our podcasts. Have, have you listened to the one that we did, uh, in the springtime about black bear hunting in British, uh, in Canada? It's called the future of black bear hunting in Canada. Yes, I did. Okay. So in in that episode, I talked about a very strange thing that happened to me once, uh, whether people believe this or not, but I saw an orange black bear one time. Like, I mean, orange, not like tannish or brown. It looked like a friggin' pumpkin. It was quite a small bear. It was maybe only like 80 pounds or something like that. Um, it had the brown colored nose, you know, like a, like a chocolate lab dog and, and the skin around its eyes was that, that color, but it was bright pumpkin orange. Um, just, just like people that have the, the bright orange version of, of a redhead. I saw that bear on the road between Dees Lake and Telegraph Creek. So, so in other words, Caltan Nation should be getting revenues from all the Winnie the Pooh merchandise and movies from the beginning. <laughs> there of the you night. go. I think I think that's where it came from. So, <laughs> the the, re, the reason I brought that up is like to this day, it still it still baffles me because uh, I've never read, heard, seen anything about it. So, if you ever hear anybody from Taltan territory that says they've ever seen an orange bear or what they know about that um let me know because it's still it's still an enigma for me it's almost like trying to talk to people like i've i've seen a bigfoot so but that's where i did see it it was in 1986 i think something like that so um all right um hey just to close out here uh i just want to do a little bit of a shout out um, to our hunter conservationist friends down in the United States. Um, just this week here, uh, we're recording this uh, in July. Um, 
their hard work uh, and years of dedication, um, they got the Great American Outdoor Act passed in the House on July 23rd. Um, it now goes to the president for signing, and I actually saw the president on Twitter actually endorsing and asking the House to pass the bill. So if you don't know about this and you don't following, haven't been following this, this is law that will come into effect in the United States, which will guarantee in perpetuity $900 million a year to go into their land and water conservation fund, which will fund conservation for fish and wildlife on public lands in the United States. So I just wanted to say to um, our American followers, congratulations. Yeah. That is pretty awesome. Um, Jesse, uh, what would you think if we had that much funding for dedicated funding for fish wildlife management in British Columbia. Would you be happy? Would you retire? I would be happy. Yeah, I would. With yeah. that much, I would be happy for sure. We'd be happy with a fraction of that. I would. Yeah, I would also be happy with $100 million to start. <laughs> no. Um, good. Yeah, I just wanted to, to thro throw that out there. Um, so once again, guys, thank you very much. Yeah. Um, this has been... Two hours uh, just flew by. Yeah, absolutely yeah. amazing, um, amazing learning experience, and I'm sure it will be for listeners as well. So uh, safe travels uh, back home, Chad. Appreciate Thanks, it, and uh, let's stay in touch. All right, everybody. Thanks. We will see you on the next episode. <laughs>